0: All right, we're in beautiful Mendocino. The sea is really green. The mountains are tall. The air is warm and fresh. It's very pretty. I've finally arrived in Mendocino County, California. It's been more than two years since my high school classmate, Zach Wooster, traveled here and got mixed up in a murder case. And now I'm following in his footsteps, trying to figure out what happened. I'm thinking about beginnings new beginnings, the beginning of a chapter, an adventure. But I'm also thinking about my own journey. After more than a year of living in my childhood bedroom, I'm ready to dive into this investigation, Gonzo style, to immerse myself in this famous California counterculture, like my journalistic heroes, Tom Wolfe or Hunter S. Thompson. Being from New Jersey, being from a small town, California represents freedom. It represents a different way of living, It represents a new beginning. And for Zach, that new beginning meant a life as an outlaw. The reason he left was because he was selling drugs and he was in trouble with the law, and he was running away from it. And California, especially Northern California, is a place where you can hide in the woods from whatever you may be hiding from. You can start a new life. Just rolling into Laytonville. Laytonville is the town where it all went down, where Zach came to escape his past, and where Jeff Settler was killed. There seems like there's some cool people selling some shit on the side of the road. I can see hippies and tie-dye and baggy pants selling t-shirts and heady tapestries. We've got a place called It Takes Two to Tangle. We've got the Cottage Motel The Cottage's motel is where the police first responded to the 911 call about the murder in episode one. Oh, and here's Wheels Cafe and Pub. Uh, And there's Boomer's Saloon right there. We've got a Chinese restaurant. And, uh, that might be it. We might have just driven through the whole thing in the course of about 45 seconds. Wow. Um, Okay. Um, And now, yeah, we're back into open fields. I pull off onto a dirt road and head up into the mountains. I pulled out my binoculars and I can see some areas where there's just like clearings in the mountains. You're like, oh, that's a farm. That's a farm. That's a water tank. That's a garden. Off in the distance, tucked behind tall pines and lush greenery are pot farms. It's like a quilt of farms and roads across the blanket of green and brown that is the forest. And it's very obvious that like these hills are populated. And that's the sound of someone shooting guns. As I descend the mountain road back to town, I concentrate my thoughts on the mission. I came here to uncover what happened to Jeff Settler and to find out what role Zach played in it. And to do that, I'd need to speak with some locals, people who might've known the victim, Jeff Settler, or Zach for that matter. So I head to Wheels Cafe, the bar I passed earlier. And as I pull into the parking lot, I can't help but think of John the trimmer I met in Brooklyn.
1: Good luck with that, man. You ever been to the bar in Laytonville? No. You'll get chased the fuck out. It's no joke out there.
0: I sit in my car, eyeing the entrance to wheels. The place looks straight out of an old Western movie, like a classic saloon with chipped paint facade and a wooden porch wrapping around the front. The kind of place where the local sheriff goes in, but then, after a flurry of gunfire, he stumbles back through the door covered in blood and slams into the dirt. Yeah, I think leaving the notebook, especially the recorder behind in the car, is going to be the move from here on out and then slowly we're going to ingratiate ourselves and, and earn people's trust. I step out of the car and pray that my jersey plates aren't visible. Out on the porch are a number of characters who definitely look like they've spent a lot of time in the woods. As I draw closer, they turn their gaze to meet me. There's one guy with messy blonde dreadlocks rolling a huge joint. Another man is drinking a beer while fingering the hilt of a very long and dangerous-looking knife hanging from his belt. I step into the bar suddenly feeling very self-conscious about my buzz cut and my jeans that are a little too tight and definitely too clean for this place. As the bartender pours me a beer, I spot another guy lingering in the corner on his own, staring off into space. He's tall and lanky, wearing a bright yellow tie-dye shirt. Out of everyone, he seems the least threatening. So I walk over and ask him, how's your day going? He looks up at me with glassy blue eyes, as if awakening from a dream. I'm okay, he says. I was just at the cemetery, paying my respects to an old friend who was killed in this town. I ask him, who's your friend? He responds, Jeffrey Settler. I'm Sam Anderson. And this is the Emerald Triangle. Zachary exactly Webster wanted for murder. I just couldn't believe my eyes. There was blood everywhere around him and on him. Settler's defensive wounds were extensive and prolonged. You don't think there's any chance that he committed this murder? No,
1: absolutely not. He explained the other people that just lived in this like city that governed themselves. There's no cops. There's no nothing.
0: Have you ever heard the term hill crazy? Oh, yeah,
1: California paranoia. You are never going to find out what the fuck happened on that mountain.
0: No one's going to tell the truth. Chapter 3, Welcome to Weed World.
1: I'll be honest with you. I was seriously, seriously thinking about the fact, is this a fucking undercover Fed or CIA agent really? like that went that? to fucking Leightonville or, you know what I mean, to see, see what's going on? But then I get reminded, of like, you know, Mother of Gaia the universe and isn't going to put that shit in my path right now, dude.
0: This is Sean, the guy I met at Wheels Cafe. We're sitting in my car driving to San Francisco. And the reason we're driving to San Francisco is because Sean needed a ride, and I needed an interview about Jeff Settler.
1: Well, you know, I trust trust that the flow of universal life is gonna guide me in the right direction. You know, and we didn't meet for no reason, you know.
0: (coughs) Sean lights up a joint and passes it to me before continuing on with his theory about the flow of universal life.
1: Like how badass would it be if when you die you go you go into the fucking hard drive and then you're like I want to reincarnate as fucking Napoleon. I want to reincarnate as fucking Alexander the Great. I want to reincarnate as fucking Kim Kardashian. <laughs> I want to reincarnate as the squirrel that was, <laughs> you know, living in fucking Mount Shasta. For I want to reincarnate as the tree in fucking Yosemite Park in that one corner. You know, like, whatever, dude.
0: After rambling about reincarnation for a very, very long time, Sean finally starts talking about Jeff.
1: We were always dancing, bro. We were always going to concerts and shows, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sean told me that's how they met in the festival scene
0: in California.
1: Jeffrey had this thing, like I'd have to be standing to show you, but yeah, I'll I'll show you the mannerism and you'll be able to feel the energy. But he would constantly move around, like.
0: The Grateful Dead dance. It's Just like this, it's like you're high in acid. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sean starts flailing his arms around, twirling his fingers, imitating this dance I had mostly seen in Woodstock documentaries. Alright, how would you describe it? How you described it. Jesus
1: Jeff. I would describe Jesus Jeff as the embodiment of that curious sense of adventure. That intuition that tells you when the wind's blowing and you see leaves blowing in a certain direction, maybe I should just walk the direction the wind's blowing. You know, like, he's the embodiment of that curious the magic, dude, the magic. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah.
1: Like, he was the embodiment of magic.
0: So he was almost like, he was a role model to you.
1: For sure. Yeah. For fucking sure. You know, when people think, well, what would so-and-so do? You know, I think, well, what would Jeffrey Settler do? Yeah. I think that to myself sometimes, you know? Yeah. Straight
0: up. How did you deal with it, you know, like your friend?
1: I mean, bro, I've had a lot of friends die, man. And in that time, I was on heroin, dude, you know?
0: So it was just, like, numbed out all the time. Just disconnected.
1: Just disconnected from reality.
0: Sean lights another joint. I take a long hit and glance in the rearview mirror, visualizing the spirit of Jeff Settler in the back seat, riding along in the smoke-filled car with his old pal Sean and this random guy who just showed up to get to the bottom of his brutal murder
1: say when we die our consciousness doesn't just go into a higher dimension, right? Who's to say right now, like, Jeff's consciousness could be completely 100 billion percent aware of what we're talking about now and speaking about now. Like, yeah. like I knew the guy. I could feel him right now. Like, he's hawkeye me, dude.
0: Finally, after driving for about three hours, we arrive at our destination.
1: So we are in San Francisco Lorenzo, San Francisco. (laughs) San Francisco. And where are we we headed? We're gonna head through the Tenderloin. It's the uh, decrepit, all out, free air, open drug market. It's a place where you can shoot heroin on the sidewalk and shit your pants and people will walk by and not even
0: cast you a glare. We pull to a stop in front of a nondescript apartment building. All right. So I'm actually gonna run and grab my friend
1: that thing he's asking for. All right. So we're here, I'll be back in T minus
0: five minutes. All right. Sitting in the car, I realized, I never asked Sean why he wanted a ride to San Francisco. But before I can think too much about what Sean might be doing up there, He's back. Everything good? In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. After driving to San Francisco, Sean and I didn't want to go all the way back to Laytonville, because it was getting late. So I called some of my friends in the Bay Area to see if we could crash. Turns out, some folks were having a party in the woods, just outside of the city. So we headed over to check it out. At some point, pretty late into the night, Sean comes running up to me, frantically explaining that there's someone here that I have to meet.
2: The man, the legend, fucking Jeffrey.
0: This is Yasmeen, or Yaz for short. She has big brown eyes and tightly braided hair and wears loose, flowy clothes and dangly jewelry. And it turns out, she was pretty close to Jeff Settler, Esmeen, yeah. jump on in here. So I convinced her to break away from the party for an interview. Okay.
2: Simultaneously opening a bottle of champagne, if that's okay?
0: Yeah, open the champagne. We'll drink the champagne while we're doing the interview. Just
2: careful with you. Pour oh. that out. This is like a an honoring of a great man, a great legend.
0: I asked Yaz how she knew Jeff Settler.
2: I don't know what you'd call me. I was like his medicine woman mixed with his confidant. I was pretty close to that man. Yeah. Like we slept in the same bed for a long period of time, you know, yeah. like plutonically, like yeah. we traveled together, worked together. When he passed, I felt like a part of me passed with him because he knew me on a level that no one else did.
0: Yaz tells me she met Jeff back in 2012, when she was couch crashing at a hippie house in Oakland.
2: This is a very typical Jeff thing. He would just be like, all right, everyone, we're taking you all out to dinner. Everyone, whoever was in the house, he'd take them all out and he'd be like, you're all gonna eat on my dime. He'd make a bunch of money and then he'd go and he'd share, you know, he'd just in charity. He'd just like, take care of everybody.
0: Over the next few years, Yaz traveled all over California with Jeff, going to festivals and shows, and she saw firsthand how he ran his operation, growing and selling weed.
2: He had this knack for being able to, like, direct people. Like, he'd be able to, like, put people in positions, take someone that had nothing going on, and give them a job and give them an opportunity. And he was like a maestro. And he just knew where everyone needed to go
0: a maestro of weed who always seemed to have a pocket full of cash. That money would inevitably run out, but Jeff was the kind of guy that didn't let that stop him from having a good time. Yaz told me a story about a time they wanted to go to a festival, but didn't have tickets.
2: We decide that we're going to sneak in. We ended up going through this dark wood thickets, and there were like security guards hidden in the woods. And we were so stealthy that we'd hear them and we'd pause. And then we'd keep going. And we were pretty lit up on, you know, we were pretty lit up. We were really high on psychedelics. That was was Jeff's thing, you know, that's how he tested people.
0: I asked Yaz, why did Jeff use psychedelics to test people?
2: You know, he'd be like, if you can hang on this, then I can trust you. Because he had trust issues, obviously, because he's an outlaw.
0: Outlaws have good reasons not to trust people. And according to Yaz, there was one person in particular who Jeff didn't trust.
2: Jeff was warned before he got a place with Lou that he was shady.
0: Lou, as in Lou Baglier, the old guy who rented the land to Jeff. You might remember him from episode one. Did you look in that building?
2: I looked from the outside, I never went in. Okay, okay? Got it. Then I was here maybe 20, 30 minutes, okay? I was really re- broke down and cried, okay?
1: After you saw Jeff,
0: <laughs> okay?
2: People that rent his property, like, shit always happens. Like, they get robbed or some shit happens. So,
0: Could Lou Baglier have something to do with what happened to Jeff? By this time, it was getting really late, or early in the morning. The sun was starting to rise behind the hills.
2: Let's let's, Let's call call it for now. I I gotta go.
0: (laughs) The next morning, I drove back to Laytonville with my new friend, Sean. And a few days later, he called me to ask for another ride, this time to a friend's house. If you want to learn about outlaw life, he says, this is the guy to meet. He's an outlaw through and through. Sean already figured out exactly what to say to get me to drive in places. So we drive up a dirt road, about 20 minutes outside of town, and pull up to a locked gate. Sean jumps out of the car, opens the lock, and directs me through. This is it, I thought. I'm past the gate. I've finally made it to Outlaw Country. We get out of the car and step up to the front porch. Sean's friend greets us at the door. I'm not gonna use his real name here. We'll call him Jim. Jim is friendly, shaking my hand with a strong grip. He asks me how long I've been in town. I just got here, I say. And when he asks what I'm doing in Leytonville, I lie and say I'm looking for work as a trimmer. We step inside the house. It's dark and dusty. The smell of cigarette smoke is hanging in the air. The walls are covered, floor to ceiling in photographs and knickknacks. There's a photo of Jim standing in a river, holding a big trap, And right next to that is a pin with a big red swastika. Looking around, I notice more than one piece of Nazi memorabilia is hanging on the wall. There are weapons, too. A couple old shotguns, a crossbow hanging from the ceiling. And on a desk near the window, a very sharp-looking axe. Sunlight glinting off the blade. Jim sees me eyeing the axe and walks over to the window to pick it up. Made this myself, he said. The handle is hewn from white oak. Of course the oak would be white. We sit down and Jim brings over some beers, then lights up a joint. After passing it to me, he exchanges a look at Sean and they both get up and walk into the kitchen. I wonder if I should follow, but I decide I better not. Eventually, Sean and Jim return. But then, Sean gets up again to use the bathroom. And it's just me and this guy making small talk. I ask him how long he's been in the area. And he says his family's been there for three generations. At least, that's what I think he told me. None of this was really registering, because I was distracted by all the swastikas. Finally, Sean comes back and sits down. But then he falls asleep, just like that. Asleep in his chair. Is he okay, I ask. Jim looks at Sean and his face goes white. What did you give him, I ask. I knew they exchanged something in the kitchen. I didn't give him anything, he says. I go up to Sean and slap him in the face, no response. Jim runs into the kitchen, gets a glass of water, and dumps it on Sean's head. No response. Fuck, he said, I think he's overdosing. We need to bring him to the fire department now. That's where the EMTs are. Jim grabs him under the shoulders, I grab his legs, and we carry Sean outside, stuffing his limp body into the front seat of my car. Jim is in the back, reaching over the seat with his hands on Sean's chest, trying to give him CPR. But the angle is all wrong, and it's not having any effect. Not again, he says, I won't let another one die. By the time we get to the fire department in Leightonville, the EMTs are outside waiting. Jim had called 911 to tell them we were coming. They pull Sean out of the car, stretch him out onto the pavement, and then shove a thing of Narcan in his nose. And just like that, he wakes up. The EMTs put Sean in an ambulance, and Jim breathes a huge sigh of relief. Then he turns to me and says, okay, I can't be here, you got this? And he walks away. I jump in my car and follow the ambulance to the hospital. Fuck man, I feel like I'm in too deep Like, I don't even know why the fuck I'm recording this Like, this is real life And this is the first time I'm really getting slapped in the face with it That this is not a fantasy That I'm not just on a fun business outing Being a reporter, like, chasing my dreams Like, this is someone else's life That almost ended tonight When you read about a weed grower getting killed in a newspaper That's not real That's a newspaper article, it's not real Um, But when you come here and somebody who you became fast friends with, when you see them almost die and you literally are holding their body lifeless in your arms and you open their eyes with your fingers and their eyes are rolled back into their head, when you see that, that is real life. That is not a newspaper article. When I get to the hospital, Sean is awake, and he seems to be doing okay. By the time he's discharged, it's two in the morning. I help him into my car, feeling exhausted, and we head back to Laytonville. All right, uh, tell us. All right, you're back, you're, you're with us. How are you? Well, tonight I
1: did some heroin and overdosed and was Narcan's. Unfortunately, um, I've been through this before, just a reaffirmation that my decisions are now killing me, and the fact is I've you know definitely slipped a little bit. Any house that has swastikas and pictures of Nazis framed is going to be a place where you know negative experiences can happen. You found yourself in the thick of it, my friend. I am and, in the fucking thick the, of it too. The dude. fact is too. It's oh like, my God! I'm grateful to know you because you don't have the same vices or trauma or disillusionment. You know, you're coming from a perspective of not only an observer, but coming from a perspective of true light. And from as far as I'm concerned, you know, love. Like, you are a fucking, you are a human being that I'm fucking grateful
0: to fucking have crossed paths with. I'm grateful because, to have crossed
1: paths with you, man. you know, I, you
0: know,
2: I've, in the
0: past- like, Sean is right I'm about one thing. I really am an outsider here. I've chosen to come to this place, but a lot of people are here because they have nowhere else to go. They may be suffering from drug addiction or running from the law or just can't hold down a regular job. They're at the end of the line and end up here because this is the only place that will accept them. Um, so what do you wanna do?
1: You wanna- uh... You can come crash my place because I do have work in the morning. Where's your place?
0: You mean the- uh, Spot
1: Laneville, yeah. Because there's a fifth wheel trailer and there's also mattress in the tent. All right, let's do that. Sound good? Yeah. All right, cool. Let's go.
0: And just like that, I found myself back in the thick of it, driving up another dirt road to a pot farm deep in the woods in the middle of the night. Welcome to weed world. Next time on The Emerald Triangle, the investigation gets real. I'm looking for investigative reports. What kind of investigative reports? Uh, What are they after? What do you got? Crooked City, The Emerald Triangle is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Novel and Sony Music Entertainment. The series is written and reported by me, Sam Anderson. Our senior producer is Joe Wheeler. Our producers are Alexa Burke, Lee Meyer, and Zach St. Louis. Story editing by Mark Smerling and Austin Mitchell. Our assistant producer is Sasha Baker, with additional research by Ivan Devon. Scott Curtis and Cherie Houston are our production managers. Fact-checking by Dania Suleiman. Mixing and sound design by Daniel Kempson. Our title track and additional tracks are composed and produced by Robert Quijano and Christopher Rose. With additional production by Nicholas Alexander. It was engineered by Peter Oviat and recorded at Moonflower Sounds Studio in Taos, New Mexico. Additional music from Marmoset and Epidemic Sound. Development by Willard Foxton. With special thanks to Indira Bernie, Max O'Brien, Sean Glynn, and Matt O'Mara. Also, special thanks to all of the amazing studio musicians at Moonflower Sounds. You can continue the conversation with us online by tweeting at CrookedCityPod. If you or anyone you know is struggling with addiction, please seek help. If you're listening from the U.S., call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-662-HELP. They're online 24 hours a day. For U.K. listeners, please search Talk to Frank or call 300 123 6600 which is also open 24 hours. And don't forget, Narcan saves lives. Ever since this experience, I always keep some in my car. Depending on where you live, it's often possible to access it for free. So do an online search and find out. And one more thing. My interview with Sean was recorded back in 2019. I haven't seen or heard from him in a very long time. If you know Sean or his whereabouts, please reach out to us. And Sean, if you're listening, get in touch. I miss you, buddy. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com.